Welcome to this week's uh, Getting Dragged for Defo episode <laughs> of Spin Cycle, the show where we do sometimes try and make sense of the, weedy, uh, the week's media goings on or we just hang on for dear life. Coming to you from the very cold and also very unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, always was, always will be. I'm Jess Lilly, and the joy of us being three last week was fleeting as Najma has ditch, ditched us for the warmer climes of Sydney this evening. However, never fear, Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis is here. G'day, Charlie. Hi, Jess. How are you doing this week? I'm good. I mean, I think um, it's it's funny when you when you when you said before that you know we try sometimes to uh, unpack the media of the week, and sometimes we try and cling on. I think. This week, as in most weeks, I'm doing both. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like there's been a real slump after, um, I think, you know, post-election there was still a lot to talk about in week yeah, one yeah, and a little bit less in week two. <laughs> and now everyone's just like, ah, I need a break in week three. Yeah, yeah. Even even the media as a whole <laughs> yes, has decided uh, yes, to totally. take a break from like outrages <laughs> to just <laughs> we were, to recoup. Yeah, we were talking about that before um, we went on air tonight. It's like, where are the stories? <laughs> yeah, and I think all, the, the the other thing is is that um, as you kind of alluded to, is that w- tonight's sort of show is going to be all about defamation. We're going to be talking to uh, Michael Bradley from Mark Lawyers later on this evening about the state the current state of, of defamation law and I think the the real irony is that is that you and I are both so knackered and coffee fried <laughs> that we have been never been more likely to let slip and defame <laughs> someone in our entire time on spin cycle, which is saying something. Well hopefully he will guide us through and yes, yes, yes. you're absolutely <laughs> so right. I forgot to mention that. But in about fifteen minutes we will be talking to freelance writer and lawyer Michael Bradley. Um, because there are so many defamation cases flying around at the moment it's given me whiplash yeah no there's so many i mean we've, we've had and also a, sort of a series of defamation laws that defamation cases sorry that appear to be quite significant for the media so we have yeah. the um the stash between uh the anonymous twitter account uh pr guy and far right activist i guess you'd call him yeah via many um we have uh, former One Nation Senator Brian Burston and uh, Pauline Hanson of Pauline Hanson's One Nation fame. Um, we have John Barillaro and the, the YouTuber uh, Friendly Geordies. Well, actually, John Barillaro is going after Google, so that, that well, that's yeah, an interesting yeah. On, 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 on account of of, of a mm. series of of, uh, of of broadcasts by mm. by by YouTuber and and many other things. It's so funny bodies. that um, that you know that these names, these people who you thought were just going to stay in the dark depths, yeah, <laughs> social yeah, media. Yeah, yeah. But ah, so, like, oh, we have to talk about <laughs> PR guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, by the way, to any listeners who are, who are baffled by this, congratulations, you live a far more healthy and well-adjusted and life we will, than uh, either Jess or I do. It will all make sense in about 15 minutes when uh, we talk to Michael. But before then, we should probably um, just have a little roundup of a couple of our other stories. I do want to shout out to um, our... Uh, uh, public broadcaster compadres 3CR who um, down the road in Smith Street who are having their um, subscriber drive oh, yeah. at the moment yeah, yeah. at their Radiothon and uh, they broadcast some of the most incredible content, um, you know, mm-hmm. f- f- some of the most sort of you will never hear anywhere else. So I really um, implore you to go to have a look over there if you if you're not already a three CR listener, and throw them some coin and subscribe this week. And if you are, do the same. Yeah, at, at about five minutes past eight. Yes, <laughs> go and do that. Well, no, uh, no, you can do it on your phone. Yeah, no, listen. you can do it now if you like. Oh. And it might not be five minute past eight, um, Charlie, because oh, we no. have some news. Yes, that's true. We've we've sort of become that other subspecies <laughs> of the broadcasting world of media <laughs> broadcasters. We are officially podcasters. We are. We are. I remember at the very beginning <laughs> of um, of the of the the COVID lockdowns. Uh, a, a, a tweet went viral, which I actually hated. I thought it was very mean spirited and dull. Where it was like. 
I'm just telling you, don't let lockdown be the time that you start a podcast. <laughs> and I feel like it wasn't because of lockdown, but I still feel that this is in some way a rebuke to that tweet and everything that it stood for. We now have a podcast. We have a podcast. We have it's uh, if you search Spin Cycle Triple R on your favorite um, podcast platform. platform. I don't even yeah. know what it's called. It's ridiculous. We've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> you will see um, a, a lovely little tile in um, in Clive Palmer and JB <laughs> Hi-Fi colours. <laughs> we are reclaiming. We are reclaiming the black and gold the colour black scheme. And gold. Oh, I should have I should have said the Richmond football team as well, but oh, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, anyway, so that is that news. Uh, is there anything else we need to talk about? There is one news story. <laughs> That's how slim pickings it yeah. is. There is one news story that I wanted to ask you about because you might understand the ramifications of this a little bit more than I do. Um, it was announced yesterday that the ABC is set to abolish 58 librarian and archivist jobs um, and they are shifting that work instead to journalists mm-hmm. <laughs> who um, prior to that have already had to become photographers and videographers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what does that mean? What Can you, Charlie, tell me in, an, in a newsroom what the role is of the librarian and the archivist and what, what, what the implications of that are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I mean, like, I have never worked in a newsroom big enough to have a librarian <laughs> or an archivist, and one just of the, imagine, but I, but I but I I dream of it every day. Um, the, I mean the 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 role of that. I mean, it's the it's the exact sort of thing that that from an outsider's perspective you would treat as though it were a um, a, a luxury or something mm. that is is something that makes your job too easy. Uh, that's that's absolute palpable nonsense. Mm. The idea of someone who can can quickly call up research from the archives of this. I mean, part of the the whole reason that the ABC is such an indispensable part of the cultural fabric of, of the country is that it has these incredible archives. It has it has decades upon decades of incredible mm. uh, news gathering and research. That Don't is, we know it come December and January when there's not much happening? In the schedule, <laughs> in the broadcasting schedule, there was so there are so many wonderful programs that rely on the archives that sometimes I think, oh, actually, I like quite like this. Yeah, time no, of year. absolutely, 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 and it's um it's part of our shared history, and it's 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 even just on that. I mean, it's the same it's the same thing that we've seen with you know in recent years the attacks on the the national archives, where where um this is actually exactly what a conservative government should be preserving. Is is this this content that is um, part of the stuff of what makes us Australians? What what part of well, you know, quote unquote Australia? That that historical idea comes from all of this stuff. So the idea that you will just let it go to rot is obviously incredibly anti-conservative. But for Charlie, one thing. we don't have a conservative government anymore. I mean, the timing of this announcement <laughs> well, yeah, to the media yeah. is very interesting, isn't it? So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, I mean, I, allegedly. I, I, allegedly. <laughs> You can tell we're about to have a lawyer on who's going to yell at us. I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to um, – yes, obviously I can't make any specific aspersions. I was not in any particular room. I don't know how the decision was made. But, I mean, it is, I think, inarguably true that um, like every board or every decision-making group that was under the uh, control of the Liberal government, uh, it was it was stacked. Uh, the ABC board was as, as stacked as the Fair Work Commission, as the AAT, as all of these places. And um, I can't believe that has nothing to do with the both the announcement itself and the timing and the timing of it. Because as 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 we were talking about off off air, um, the Labour Party have obviously committed very heavily to. Um, redressing some of the financial issues that are happening at the ABC. Yes, yeah. The, I mean, that was part of the election promise was that the uh, ALP government would um, restore a lot of the funding cuts mm-hmm. that that the um, LNP made while they were in government. And so it just seems very peculiar to make an announcement at this particular yes, point in time. a week or two after the election. Mm. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. So over the last year, we've seen a flurry of high-profile defamation cases concerning figures as diverse as former hero soldier Ben Robert Smith, actor Craig McLaughlin, anonymous Twitter user PR Guy, and New South Wales Nationals leader John Barillaro. 
uh, Michael Bradley, who is the managing partner at Sydney law firm Marquee Lawyers and a frequent contributor to Crikey. He joins us now to talk us through it. Michael, thank you so much for making time to join us. It's a pleasure. So I suppose, I mean, to sort of for the, the listeners that don't know, could you just talk us through a little bit about, um, I suppose, the, the use of defamation law in Australia and how that would sort of contrast with other jurisdictions in terms of how friendly it is to, say, the say the media? Yeah, well, we are um, known as the most plaintiff-friendly defamation jurisdiction in the world, and we deserve that title. Um, um, You know, there's a reason why so much of public discussion and the public space is taken up by defamation cases and talk about defamation cases here because it's just a constant. Um, And it's, you know, (laughs) takes up way more space than it should. Um, And you know, in really broad terms, um, what that means is that the, the scope for free speech, the expression of free speech and free media in this country is very constrained compared to a lot of other um, comparable societies. And can we talk through a bit about the, I guess, the practicalities of that in terms of, say, you're a journalist and or not even a journalist, but say you're a journalist and you're you're sued for defamation by a, a public figure. What what is the legal um, onus on you in that situation? Yeah, so defamation sort of operates pretty much on a reverse onus basis. So if you publish something about a person and they say, "Hey, you've defamed me," in what you've said about me. Um, their onus is to prove that what you've published about them or broadcast about them is defamatory, and that's a very low bar. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult to to publish something about a person which which is defamatory of them because it's basically anything that um, goes against their reputation. So, and then once once sorry, sorry hang on. No, I was going to say. Well, once, so once, what happens next? So where does that leave yeah. you in terms of having to prove? Yeah. So once they've established that, the onus shifts to you, the publisher, and you have to prove that you've got a good defence. And certainly for the media, the easiest and most viable and usual and often the only defence they've got available to them is truth. So if you can prove the substantial truth of what you've said or what you've implied about that person, then you have a complete defence to the defamation claim. There are other defences, but that's sort of the main one. So as long as you're, as long as what you're saying is true, um, then it doesn't matter whether it's defamatory because you've got a complete defence. But the onus of proving that is on you, so mm-hmm. you've got to be able to back up. If you're running allegations uh, about a person, then you've got to be able to back that up with evidence because you're going to have to prove that on the balance of probabilities. So in the case of someone like um, Ben Robert Smith, and I appreciate this is an ongoing defamation trial, and I know I could say allegedly until the (laughs) cows come home (laughs) won't make a difference, Mm -hmm. but it's gone on for so long and the amount of witnesses that have had to be brought um, forward in order to... um, you know, try and <clears throat> substantiate a claim that the new that the newspaper, you know, Fairfax and um, Channel Nine, have, or broadcasters, had already legally sort of fulfilled some kind of requirement of evidence. How is the law then becoming um, redundant, or is it, or or perhaps where are the failings of the law in a case like that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, Robert Smith is, is kind of your classic burn the house down defamation case um, <laughs> where it's just all or nothing on both sides. You know, they've thrown, they've thrown the worst possible allegations you could against him. They've accused him yes. of you know, war crimes. Yeah, I um, wanted you to say that rather than me. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's that's what they've published. They've published some incredibly um, serious allegations against him and and he's suing them. And um, so they have to prove the the truth of um, the worst, at least the worst of those allegations, otherwise they lose the case. Um, There are 
two problems, I guess, in sort of kind of stepping away from the specifics of that case. There are two problems that it illustrates in terms of free press and, and free speech. Um, one is that we haven't up till now had um, much protection for true investigative journalism mm-hmm. um, and there have been amendments made to the Defamation Act which attempt to fix that problem but they're not relevant to the Robert Smith case because the fact they predate the new defence. Um, the other is that um, we don't have anything which um, protects the media when it when the person it's reporting on is is a person with a public profile. Um, so he's obviously a person with a high public profile, but but it's particularly relevant to um, cases where you're talking about a politician. Um, and um, our law says public figures have the same level of protection from defamation mm. as. Joe Bloggs. Um, that is very different from the situation, particularly in the US, um, where where public figures pretty much can't sue for defamation in most cases. And um, well, they're the ones who have to prove, don't they, that they that they, they have to prove malice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So they have to prove that the publication was maliciously motivated. Otherwise, they don't have a case at all. Um, and that's explicitly in the in America in pursuit of the principle of free speech which is constitutionally mm-hmm. entrenched there they say as a matter of philosophical principle in order to have true democracy you have to have true free speech and a truly free press and to do that you have to enable the press to investigate things and to sometimes publish things which are you know even potentially wrong about public figures because otherwise democracy dies in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we don't have that principle at all here. Is um, that the difference sort of... here, because we don't uphold free speech so, you know... Explicitly. Explicitly within a, a constitution or whatever, the defamation laws have actually become quite sort of legally, um, you know... You know that tight they they run a legal tightrope rather than any kind of broader um, philosophical yeah. concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much when you go back to first principles, it comes from two two facts. One is that yeah, we don't have a legal right to free speech in Australia. We're the only mm. Western democracy that doesn't have an entrenched right of free speech. It's not in the Constitution. We don't have a Bill of Rights. So um, so it's not within our legal tradition um, to protect free speech as a principle. And the other is that we um, honour the right to a personal reputation more than we honour the concept of free speech. So defamation mm. is a private right which is there to protect personal reputation and the way that our defamation law has developed and the way it's maintained is it actually prioritises that personal right to reputation above the public interest in the concept of free speech. And that's what leads to the balance that we have, which, in my view, is completely out of whack. But that's where we are. So with that in mind, who do you think defamation laws in Australia serve and protect and who do they undermine or work against? Yeah. Well, in theory, they protect everyone equally. In practice, they act mostly to protect the rich and powerful. Um, Defamation litigation is extremely expensive Mm. um, and, you know, it's not not generally available to to the guy in the street. Um, So for the most part, it's used by people with money and, and or power to... Um, protect their reputations. Um, now, you know, sometimes validly so because they've been defamed unfairly. Often, however, it's wielded as a weapon to silence or shut down um, what might be valid criticism or genuine investigation uh, or the exploration of matters of genuine public interest. Following on from that, I feel that there's um, been a bit of a flurry in the last, particularly last year, of um, fairly powerful figures, often politicians, um, suing not publications but individuals. So um, 
and to varying degrees. So obviously we saw um, uh, for well, current opposition leader Peter Dutton suing a Twitter user Shane Bazzi for 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 statements he made against him on Twitter. Uh, but we also saw people using things like concern notices and things like that. Um, is that? I mean, we've always seen politicians willing to sue to protect their reputation in Australia. But was that the first time that we saw that kind of bleed out away from the media and into social citizens media. and constituents and, and social media? Yeah, it, it's that sort of played out in a couple of different ways. Um, partly, it's connected to the Me Too movement. Um, so there have been examples where. Um, defamation plaintiffs have sued media and their um, accuser. So Craig McLaughlin did that. Right, right. He, he, he sued um, one of the women who had accused him mm-hmm. um, pers- personally. Uh, we saw in the Christian Porter case, he sued the journalist, Louise Milligan, personally, mm-hmm. as well as the yeah. ADC. Now, those are tactical decisions made by plaintiffs um, which are unnecessary from a sort of legal or financial perspective because it's the publisher who, the media publisher who's got, got the money and um, you don't get double damages from having two defendants. So so those are tactical choices. So it's just bullying, for, allegedly? Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, you can speculate on what the reasons are for those choices, but, but clearly they are choices made for... You know, for specific reasons, mm-hmm. different. For, you know, the other area where it is playing out is um, reflective of the growth of the um, growth of importance and significance of of social media. Mm. So the sort of you know democratisation of of um, media away from traditional media into into the public forum where everyone has a voice, um, and so people are. You know, because that's becoming more powerful and more influential, people are responding to that in part by being more willing to to go after individuals um, who you know may have a substantial platform audience um, and uh, and suing them. I mean, Dutton went after Shane Bazzi presumably to make an example mm. of him mm. um, because obviously Shane didn't have any money um, and was you know, pretty much just a random um, who tweeted something that a lot of other people had also tweeted. Um, and, and Dutton had been quite explicit. He, you know, he'd said, look, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to go and clean up the internet myself um, <laughs> and, and, and sue everyone. Unfortunately, he fell over at the first hurdle. But, um, <laughs> Which was fabulous. But, I mean, well, you know, what, not unhappy about that outcome, but yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we will see more of that for sure, and that sort of that's in the sort of public realm, more in the sort of less um, prominent area. There's been an absolute explosion of what we call Facebook defamation cases, where where you know it's literally Joe Bloggs suing suing Jill Bloggs mm. um, for something they've they've posted on a private Facebook group or, you know, community Facebook group or whatever, um, or within the context of a, you know, a body corporate or a community association or whatever, a club, there's this, this private sort of defamation litigation has been going completely nuts and clogging up the courts. Um, That's crazy. Because, and I, I yeah, I yep. didn't realise that was going on. Um, if you've just yep. tuned in, it's 28 minutes after 7 o'clock. You're tuned to Spin Cycle on Triple R. And we are chatting to Michael Bradley, who is a freelance writer and a managing partner at Sydney firm Mark Lawyers um, about defamation law and, and the slurry of cases um, going on at the moment. And I would love to hear more about those private cases. However, our remit is the media. <laughs> so I'm going to bring you back, reel you back in. Um, there is one case at the moment that just sort of it, it pains me to even kind of talk about it because I like closing my Twitter app and imagining these people don't exist outside of it. But um, there's uh, Avi Yemeni, who is, I guess, a right-wing... Uh, a far-right activist, I think, yeah, is probably a fair description. ...has um, brought a case against uh, an anonymous um, Twitter user, uh, at PR guy. What do you make of something like this? Well... Um 
to be precise. He hasn't brought a case against PR Guy yet. Uh-huh. He's, got, he's gone to the federal court to say, I'm thinking I'm going to bring a case against him and applied to the court for what we call preliminary discovery to force Twitter to hand over identifying the, the information they have, which may help him to identify who that person is because he can't sue someone until he can identify them. So that's a procedure that the court procedure he's using and Twitter has consented to that, so those orders have been made. Um, but he still, if he gets that, if he gets information which which enables him to identify who that person is, and he still wants to sue him, or her, then yes, he can do that. But he hasn't actually done that at this point. He's just been threatening to do so. So another case then is Barillaro mm-hmm. uh, versus um, well, it in it should be Friendly Geordies, right? Who made the video? But actually, he's. Um, gone after Google? Yeah, well, he sued... He did sue Friendly Geordies as well, originally, but but, um, he settled. So Jordan Shanks, who is Friendly Geordies, settled with Barilaro um, a while back, um, and Barilaro continued his case against Google um, for the same stuff and on the basis that Google had, had published... Um, the Friendly Geordies videos on, on YouTube and was liable for them. Um, the problem for Google in that case was that there was no defence available and it, and it actually gave up mm. all its defences before trial um, because fundamentally what Friendly Geordies had put in his videos about Barolo was very defamatory, um, indefensibly so, and Google didn't have didn't have a defence. So, um, really, it was just a, an argument about how much money they should pay. Mm-hmm. And because they hadn't taken down the videos at any point, um, they um, the judge found that they'd sort of aggravated the damage to. Barilaro and so added on some extra extra damages and the payout ended up being pretty large. Um, so it was a, it's a deeply unpleasant case from every perspective. Um, and in a, I think Google gave Barilaro ultimately a pretty free swing to claim that his life had been destroyed by friendly Geordies, um, and there wasn't anything really they could say about it. Um, so, um, and the judge accepted all of that pretty much. Um, so he's, yeah, and it, it ended up pretty good for Barilaro. Um Now, you know, there is a question about whether a person in that position, a politician, a political leader, um, should have access to the mm. defamation courts in a context like that, where mm. what he was being accused of was essentially um, corruption, yeah. um, being a bad person in the performance of his public office. Um, if if he was an American politician, he couldn't sue, yeah, um, unless he could prove malice, which. He might have been able to do. Um, well, and that, didn't uh, yeah, end up given the tone. In, well, you know, I mean, the, yeah, the judge was very unhappy with just how grossly racist um, the videos were when they were. Fifties, like fifties style racism. I haven't. Um, I've got to be honest. I have not, and probably will not ever <laughs> watch a friendly daughter's videos. So <laughs> ever I, since I was I the can't. subject of one, I have stopped watching them. Were you? Yeah. Oh yeah, we can talk that uh, off yeah, after the show. Yeah, I think I mean it's he's not the best poster boy for free, <laughs> for the freedom of the press. <laughs> well, actually, what I wanted to talk about um, bouncing off of that was, and I think this is quite significant to any of our any of our listeners who are particularly politically engaged and use Twitter, is I think there's a bit of a a 
an inbuilt idea that in some way the standards that are applied to someone tweeting something defamatory as opposed to someone publishing it in a major publication are in some way different. But I suppose I feel like these most recent cases kind of maybe indicate that's not really the case? No, it's definitely not the case. I mean, that's something the courts have been pounding on for a while. And, like, it was kind of, I think it was kind of generally assumed um, for a fair while that social media was, an, you know, a kind of unregulated, lawless zone where you could do whatever you want um, because nobody, nobody was regulating it and there didn't seem to be any consequences. So you could post whatever you want about Twitter about anyone and there's no consequence and that sort of emboldens everyone to to feel like, you know, awesome. I, you know, this, this is just like this sort of free zone. Um, as it has gained influence and significance, um, it's, it's kind of come under the microscope and ended up in the courts and the courts have gone... Um, as they have consistently said with the digital world, um, it's no different from from the law's perspective. It's no different from a printed newspaper. The same law applies. Is you know, um, it's just a different medium. So yeah, you, you know, if you defame someone on Twitter, um, you're going to wear the same consequences as if you put it on a poster and, and stuck it on a telegraph pole. Do you think that's right? I mean, do you think that the law is being unyielding and should maybe um, be reviewed to kind of, you know, ride with the times? And I don't mean that people should be able to just, you know, throw out defamatory stuff all over the place, but, you know, context. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, well, a, publisher, uh, yeah. a news publisher has a, a full suite of lawyers, editorial policy, ethical guidelines, all of that sort of stuff. It's, there's a very... And a much bigger audience. Yeah, and yeah. a very robe, a much bigger audience and also a certain legitimacy that goes with it. An individual who's, you know, drunk posting on Saturday night, <laughs> it's a bit weird to sort of hold them up to the same sort of um, legal standards. principles, yeah, and legal standards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I think at one level there should definitely be a defence for, for drunk posting. Um, <laughs> Thank but, you. Yeah, but, that's all um, I wanted and, to hear. No, that's, that's in my personal interest. But, um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, look, I, I agree. I think, you know, fundamentally there's a problem, which is that our defamation law was created in the 19th century in an analogue world mm-hmm. where where media was controlled, right? You know, the, um, the dissemination of defamatory information was fixed. It was, it was very limited and you could control it. And the courts have, have tried manfully to apply the same principles to the 21st century digital world and it's a very bad fit Mm. Um, and what it ignores I think most importantly is that because of the very nature of the internet and social media in particular defamation is endemic and always will be in that context in that world it there's no you know it's like holding back the tide Mm. it's it and not just because it's partly a sewer but because it's such a place of constant, immediate communication in multiple, in infinite directions, it, you know, it's 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 completely different. It has nothing in common with the printing of a newspaper and its distribution to readers, or the making of a television program. It's just a completely different world, and it requires a completely different response. Mm. So, so trying to treat it the same way, you just doomed to fail and and that's what's happening the law is not adequately coping with that world and it's and so and that's one of the, i think the reason why we're seeing these these cases um these sort of celebrated defamation cases that are coming up that are related to you know the online world are being treated as sort of you know totemic in significance and you know massive precedence in legal terms Generally speaking, most of them are not. Yeah. They're just they're the conventional application of ancient legal principles um, to to you know a different context. So there's nothing particularly surprising about most of the outcomes. But 
in a social sense, they are incredibly significant. Um, so, um, so that that's kind of a indication that that it's as a systemic response, it's failing. Mm. It's not like it's not like the volume or intensity of defamation on social media is going down as these cases are unfolding. No, absolutely it's, not. It's having no impact whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, except on certain individuals or, you know, like, it, you know, so, and that's, that's, a, that's a legal system that, that, that is failing if it's not giving a consistent response and it's not actually achieving the social purpose that it's designed to, then, then yeah, it's just putting money in random pockets and probably, you know, it's more likely to redistribute money into wealthier pockets. Yeah. On that point, I have seen Mark lawyers, <laughs> amongst others, in high-profile situations just say, be careful what you um, tweet en masse. Like, you can have an impact on the outcomes of cases and, you know, um, you just because one person is saying it, then it doesn't mean that you can all say it, etc. What is your position? I mean, what is going to happen there? You guys should not be obviously tied up doing that. But, you know, do we need to en masse become more educated (laughs) in the ways of defamation laws? Or should Twitter have a responsibility to, you know sort of have a, a five-point checklist for people before they tweet, you know, that you have to read this so you understand the impacts of what you're potentially tweeting? Yeah, but, like, I mean, it's just impossible, mm. isn't it? I mean, there's, I don't know, how many million tweets are there every second? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, and it's all happening in real time and we now live in this 24-7 media environment where... You know, if you're on social media, if you're, for example, you're on Twitter and you're active, then, you know, there's this compulsion to be constantly up to date and to be responding in real time to what's happening and to be ahead of the news because it all happens so fast. So if you want to make a comment about something, you've got to do it pretty quickly. Otherwise, it's, you know, it, it's no longer topical. Um, and that's sort of, you know, and it's impossible to be fully informed about the facts, let alone the law, in doing so, so um, so it's a practical impossibility. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we yeah we tweeted recently about um, there was um, yeah someone that someone had published an you know very really serious allegation against a serving uh, yes, politician. That's right. Yep. And everyone was you know spreading it, and we just made the point that. You know, you you might be the thousandth person to republish that allegation, but unless you can prove the truth of it, (laughs) you are fucked. (laughs) If if he sues you, you are fucked. So, um, you know, and weirdly, we copped a lot of criticism for that tweet, as if, you know, we were taking the side of the person who'd been defamed. It was a hot hot time on Twitter. I mean, I remember the same same thing when the George Pell stuff was happening, and people were trying to make that public, and I was saying, guys, stop doing this, and people were like, oh, you want to protect the Catholic Church, and it's like, I I want to do no such thing, I want to protect (laughs) you from the consequences of your action. Interesting you yeah, mentioned totally. Sorry, yeah. interesting you mentioned George Pell because Louise <laughs> Milligan wrote a book about him, and uh, that is a good segue to um, the Christian Porter case against the ABC. I find that fascinating that a serving minister would um, sue um, the public broadcaster um, for defamation and a lawyer, and then could be funded anonymously by someone to run that case. What are your thoughts on that? Um, there's only so much I can say about that because we're still in litigation against him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, there were, yes, there were a lot of features of that scenario which were unusual. Um, I mean, yeah, he had the right to sue for defamation, um, not gonna he dropped the case ultimately and yes, he did. didn't didn't pursue it. Um um yeah, I mean the the fact that um 
nobody knows who funded him is an oddity of uh, mm. governance at, at sort of political level and probably unsatisfactory from most people's perspectives, but it is what it is. And but that has, no impact on the, that has no impact on the law, obviously. I mean, I think it's interesting where on anonymity can be preserved and then anonymity is actually becomes something that is um, not... Very contested. Yeah, yeah, is more contested. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, you know... Uh, unusual things about that case was, of course, that the ABC didn't name him. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and he named himself and then sued them. And if the case had run, he would have had to prove that he was identifiable as the person that they were talking about mm-hmm. um, in publishing the allegation against him. Um, and, and it would have been interesting because he... His argument in that respect was uh, had a lot to do with, um, you know, like the volume of Google searches on his name and mm. and, and oh. all the rant, all because you know there was wild speculation at the time, and there were, you know, all they'd said was he was a senior cabinet minister, and there were sixteen senior cabinet ministers who it mm. could have been, and there was this wild speculation all over the internet for days um, until he came out and, and said it was him. Um, and all 16 of those people were being defamed at that time by the speculation. Um, so, but yeah, you know, if, if it, it would have been, it would have been a very interesting question because that's quite a tricky aspect of defamation law. If you're, if you're not actually identified by name in the defamatory publication, you have to prove that the audience would have put two and two together and known or worked out that it was you. And, um, and does that feel yeah, like... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, does that feel like it's a particular um, symptom, I suppose, of the social media age that he could run that argument because because of Twitter and because of uh, the places where this kind of speculation would take place, which might not have otherwise been in the public square in the same way? Yeah, totally. Exactly right. And... Um, you know, and then that can become a bit of a chicken and egg question, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and that's, that hasn't really been explored by the courts yet. So it, it would have been an interesting test case from that perspective if it, if it had run. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how that would have run. But, um, but yeah, it is, it is really interesting because now, yes, as, as soon as something is published, um, you know, the hairs are off and running and mm. there's no stopping them. I feel like we could keep talking about this forever. I do have a couple of more very quick questions. One is we have been talking about defamation law like it is evil. <laughs> do you have any examples of, you know, good faith defamation, um, you know, uh, sort of examples of defamation law working as it should? Oh, yeah, for sure. I Particularly think, with the um, media. Yeah. I mean, the classic example, and there was one of these just the other day, actually, um, is where someone is misidentified. Yeah. Mm. So, yes. so where the, the media um, run a story saying, OK, well, you know, this person's been accused of uh, murder or arrested, charged with murder, and then they run the photo of the wrong person, um, which is an increasing danger now because they all just go straight onto, you know, Facebook yeah. and and they pull want to whatever be first. they can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah, this um this happened, yeah, just recently one of, I think it was one of the networks did it where they they just got the wrong person. Was it was this yeah. uh, Terence Flowers, the the accused um That was another one, of, yeah. Of Cleo Smith? Uh no. Oh, no it was, was... <laughs> Yeah, I can't I can't remember it was uh, Media Watch reported it this week actually, but I can't oh, remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm thinking of a different one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but that's that's happened quite often over the years, and and that's like so that's a classic, flat out defamation, mm. um, indefensible, and that is that is a um, worthy plaintiff, you know, who deserves to to get a lot of money to compensate for the damage that's been done. Um, you know, if if someone runs completely false allegations or allegations where they have absolutely no evidence or basis for doing it, they're just having a wild slash at someone, then yeah, absolutely, mm. you know, because the damage that can be done 
is incalculable. It can destroy careers, it can destroy, you know, relationships, it can, you know, can kill people um, because reputation has has value, high value. Um, but um, but those are, you know, relatively rare. Most yeah. defamation cases, um, it's pretty hard to find the social value in them, frankly. I have one more question that's been tweeted at me since <laughs> <laughs> since we've been talking. Uh, this is such a curveball, but I don't know if you work in um, um, book publishing at all, but um, memoir, someone was asking about memoir and how difficult stories can still be told when publishers are afraid of def- defamation suits, actual real-life memoir stories. Um, yeah, look, it, it is um, it is a real challenge um, for the publishing industry in Australia um, where uh, where someone wants to tell their story and that involves disclosures which are um, defamatory of someone else. Um, it's hard to get them up and mm. uh, and publishers are, are um, often gun shy um, because because the risk to them is is so high um, it, it, particularly for a, you know like for a book publisher the stakes are incredibly high because they can and sometimes have been ordered to, to pulp yeah. the entire print print run of a book which is you know has a lot of money. Um, so, um, so yeah, they have to be super careful about, um, what they publish and, and most publishers or major publishers certainly like they are rigorous in their fact checking, um, and legal vetting before they'll go to print. But even so, they often get sued, particularly in sort of that memoir space. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It has been amazing and I feel like we could do a part two down the line. There's gonna be, I'm already going to have so many questions. As I go home, I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't ask that. We've been talking to sure. Michael Bradley, who is a writer and a managing partner at Sydney firm Mark Lawyers about defamation. What would be your parting advice to Twitter users mm young journalists, anyone out there who's a little bit concerned that putting allegedly before something might not <laughs> might quite not be it. enough? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it isn't enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> you treat Twitter like, like you're writing a newspaper article and apply the same degree of rigour to... Um, to, to what you put out there, if if you're if you're going to say something about a person which um, is bad, then don't do it unless you can back it up. Um, and the fact that someone else has said it, or even a million people have said it, isn't a defence. Great. Words. Thank you. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Hopefully, none of us will be in that situation. But um, I have seen Charlie a couple of times when we first started this show. Got slightly white because <laughs> yeah. he was much more, much more appraised. Doing a few, a few off mic gestures to be like, maybe, maybe we should add yeah, some caveats there. <laughs> much more appraised of the law, and I do feel like it is used and abused by people with power. So hopefully, it is something that can be reformed. And I appreciate that um, that you and that Mark Lawyer are very often um, representing the people who are not the powerful in these situations. So thanks very much, Michael, and hopefully we'll chat again. Yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Michael. Triple R. I uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like I am still have no defence <laughs> against defaming someone. It just it seems like such a goldmine. And, Charlie, there was a little, uh, speaking of goldmine, there's a little nugget in there that I really want to pick up again. Okay. Um, oh, God. <laughs> a, when uh, Friendly Geordies uh, had a go at you, which oh, yeah, I can't yeah, wait yeah. to hear about. But, B... Have you ever had um, had someone accuse you of defamation? I have, I have, and it's well, the, the the funny thing about it is, um, and I suspect any any journalist who works for long enough for any publication will have this happen. Mm. It's never the story that you expect. 
the one that you submit with a, a, a sort of film of cold sweat and trembling hands, the one that you fear that they will call your employer or call you and, and yell at you and tell you that you're going to court, it's never that one. It's, mm. it's often weirdly, somet- sometimes, and so it's, I think it's happened maybe twice, maybe three times that I've been, and it's never come to any kind of like official kind of formal pro- post- process. Um, but generally it's either an incredibly stupid mistake that has stayed in a piece where you've worded something really clumsily Mm. and the, you haven't picked it up. The editor hasn't picked it up. It's gone to print. And then you realize, oh, that could be very easily interpreted to mean this. Mm. That's actually more common than than I'd like to admit. Um, (laughs) but occasionally it's just an aside in a story that's not even about that person. And that's when you get the really aggressive, letter that's like it's you a little, take this down you apologize yeah it's a, it's a little bit of an aside it's 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 a bit of snark and you think there's no way that's a, you don't even yourself it, you're congratulating yourself with that little <laughs> tiny bit of yeah yeah you know a little thinking, smile that's, that's that a good is, yeah pr guy's gonna <laughs> smile at that <laughs> by the way i think we should make clear for legal reasons that i have never had any interaction with the pr guy uh, nor do i intend to <laughs> um <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's that, I think that's that's one of the funny things about it is that, and it's a good thing to to think about if you're not a, a publisher in the traditional sense of the word, if you're just someone who tweets a lot and likes to be topical about these things. Mm. You know, the the ones that you kind of you hover over and you think about very strongly before you you post, they might not even be the ones that actually end up. Well, they probably trouble. won't because you've censored them because you've thought a bit about mm. it. It's the, it's the it's the thoughtless gag at someone's expense yeah. that might end up being the one that gets you in trouble. It's a shame. It's a shame the world is the way it is because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just <laughs> that's like the theme of this show. <laughs> we could say that at the end of every episode. <laughs> well, that's the way the world is. It's a shame. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>